You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. During seven days of deliberations, there was only one piece of evidence the jury in the Elizabeth Holmes trial asked to review. A 30-minute recording of the Theranos founder pitching her blood testing machine to potential backers in 2013. Company is about being able to change the healthcare industry, and that's something that we plan on doing for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. We, we had the opportunity to create an industry here, and that's what this is about. The jurors found the 37-year-old guilty of criminal fraud for her role in building and promoting the blood testing startup into a $9 billion company that collapsed in scandal. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt, who covered the trial. Did Holmes have any reaction when the jury verdict was read? She maintained the same posture and expression that she has for the entire trial, which is staring directly at the clerk as the verdict was being read and staring directly at the jurors as they were polled, sitting straight upright and fairly expressionless. I will say I did note a softening in her eyes, which had been kind of you know, focused and hardened for the entire trial. She didn't appear to be crying, but maybe just a little more expression. You know, the most telling thing that I saw was actually outside the courtroom, her father. He was waiting for her, and he had found this nook just out of public view, just barely out of public view, and he sat down in his suit and tie on the ground with his knees to his chest for a very long time. And he was staring at a wall, maybe two or three feet in front of him, just stunned, I think, at the verdict. And to me, that was kind of the most telling thing about the verdict. She was convicted of four out of 11 counts. Explain the breakdown. Sure. Well, the breakdown kind of most simply put, the charges were defrauding investors and defrauding patients. And the charges pertaining to the patient, she was acquitted on all of those. And that just didn't go over well with jurors. They did not find that she intentionally defrauded 
patients. The investor counts, on the other hand, stood up pretty well. She was convicted of four of them, and there were others that she was not convicted of, and we don't know why. We don't know why jurors chose to convict her of some investor counts and not others. There were clearly details in some investor counts that made them less compelling to jurors. That surprises me a bit because the investor counts were very similar. There was a similar pattern that was involved in terms of the information they got, the pitches they heard from Elizabeth Holmes. The government seemed to make a point of making almost a kind of repetition of what each investor faced. But the jury, kind of interestingly, detected some differences that I haven't yet figured out. Tell us about that investor call the jurors wanted to listen to during deliberations. Yeah, that was a really interesting piece of evidence. It was an investor call from 2013 in which Elizabeth Holmes is describing her machines, how accurate they are, how quickly she's ramping up. She's describing the company's efforts to move into Safeway and Walgreens and how quickly she wants to establish what she described as a national footprint. She described the company as being valued at this point at $7 billion, which was an incredible run-up in terms of the valuation of the company and the pressure to get these investors to turn over their money because the window was closing, as she described it. The opportunity was closing. So this was an amazing piece of evidence, and this call was recorded surreptitiously by an investor in Dallas on a tape recorder, and that was replayed for the jurors at their request. And, you know, interestingly, the jury did not find Elizabeth Holmes guilty on the counts that apply to this particular investor who recorded this call and also testified. And for whatever reason, they found that not compelling. I thought the evidence was actually quite quite damning against her. I thought it was really interesting and compelling to hear her in her own voice pitching the Theranos blood analyzers, which was kind of an important overall overarching piece of evidence for the government. It was surprising to me that that was the only piece of evidence the jury asked for in seven days of deliberations in this complex case. It is surprising. For many days, they were so quiet and working for so many hours just so quietly. It was really kind of agitating, I think, (laughs) to members of the press who wanted to hear more. They wanted something. I do think the government presented a clear case. I think the evidence, the testimony was clear. It was a lot of evidence. It was just a real pile of evidence of over two dozen witnesses, many documents. But I think it was clear. So I don't think, I think it was kind of a matter of sorting through it and and kind of moving through that and each witness. But in terms of actually understanding what happened, what they said, what the documents represented, I think that wasn't probably very confusing. Usually when a defendant takes the stand, it almost flips the trial on its head because the question for the jury becomes, do we believe her or not? Do you think that she did herself any favors by taking the stand? I think she did herself a huge favor by taking the stand. It was it was a huge risk. Uh, as you know, white-collar criminal defendants don't often do that because they expose themselves to oftentimes withering cross-examinations. I think the calculation here was that the evidence, which I've described, was so overwhelming that she had to take that chance. It was just kind of, I don't want to say a Hail Mary because that's, that makes it sound a little bit too desperate, but the best chance she could give herself. And she was compelling. She was dynamic as a witness. She 
came, I thought, dangerously close to perjury. I think she came very close to lying under oath. She walked a very fine line in terms of doing a combination of things. One is that she owned up. In fact, she admitted to some of the lies that you and I have discussed here already today about, for example, placing the logos on the reports from pharmaceutical companies. She actually owned up to that, but she would explain it by saying she wished she had done it differently. So that was, in some ways, I think actually compelling. It showed that she was contrite in a way or had some some amount of regret. But there are other ways in which she deflected responsibility. And then there was this really shocking testimony in which she explained that she was raped as a student at Stanford and that that was the reason she left Stanford to start Theranos and that she suffered further sexual abuse from her own partner and the president of Theranos, Sonny Balwani, who was on trial next month facing the same charges. It was designed to raise questions in jurors' minds about whether or not this was a reason for her behavior and for doing the things that she did. And I think she did her best. And I think she was actually quite compelling. And it raised a lot of interesting questions and maybe some doubt. Ultimately, it didn't work for her. So now we assume she's going to appeal. Sitting through the trial, did you notice any points, any obvious points of appeal? This to me is a very interesting question and a very important point. The short answer is no. I think there's nothing for her to appeal here. The judge went out of his way to let Elizabeth Holmes and the government hash out differences in the middle of trial. He allowed the defense to raise every argument that they wanted to, to the point where it got long. The trial started in late August. It finished in early January. There was the shadow, the kind of cloud of first the coronavirus, the Delta variant, and then now more recently Omicron, which threatened to derail the entire thing. Yet the judge just let it play out kind of very slowly and very carefully. And I think that this was very specifically designed to not allow for any issues to appeal. And the way the verdict broke down with her being acquitted on some charges, found guilty on others, and a deadlocked jury on three counts indicates that they walked through the counts one by one very carefully, mapped out the verdict form, what they were required to do under the rules. And I think that time that they spent on that and how carefully they worked through it makes for, I think, zero issue on appeal. She's facing 20 years on each count, but that's not going to happen. So what might the sentence be? Well, as you know, he has some leeway within the guidelines, but she is going to spend time in prison for sure. My early assessment was that she would spend, being a first-time offender and a white-collar criminal, probably between three and five years. A closer look at that and some conversation with experts tells me something different. One of the counts was for $100 million. She was found guilty of, in one instance, defrauding an investor of $100 million. The money matters, and it bumps up by statute the amount of time that she may end up serving. And I think she's going to spend a minimum of five years in prison and maybe even a bit more. And most likely, will she be held in one of those cushy minimum security prison camps like the so-called Camp Cupcake? 
That's right. I mean, as far as prisons go, it's going to be a comfortable setting. There's a lot of speculation that she, you know, would have time to write a book or a screenplay. You know, she's going to be relatively free to do what she wants. I do think it'll be a big change for her, though. Even after Theranos, she has had a baby with Billy Evans, who's an heir to a hotel fortune. And you can tell just during trial, she's being picked up in a car and driven to an estate where she's staying and living a very extremely luxurious lifestyle. That's going to be gone. And I think it will be a difference for her. But as far as prison goes, yeah, it'll be a comfortable prison life. Can Sonny Balwani divorce himself from her actions during his trial, or is it going to be uphill? It's going to be uphill. One of the accounts that she was convicted of was conspiracy. He's not named in the count, but clearly the conspiracy was with Sonny Balwani. He faces that same count. And the evidence at trial just really tied them together. The government had to struggle at times to kind of make Elizabeth Holmes at her trial in charge because they wanted to make clear that she was the one making these decisions. Um, They're going to have to kind of invert that a bit, the government, at at his trial, but they're not going to have to stretch to do that because the emails and the texts between the two just show that they were working so closely together and were very much involved and even showed, there's one email that I'm remembering that shows his concern, his expressing concern about her overstating the capabilities of the blood analyzers and and worried about it. And I can only imagine how that evidence plays at trial. It's the fact that she was convicted, I think, uh, bodes badly for him. Thanks, Joel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. President Joe Biden beat out every president since Ronald Reagan in getting judges confirmed in his first year. And Biden helped to diversify the bench with his nominees. 20 were black, 14 were Hispanic or Latino, 13 were Asian American and Pacific Islander, and three were Native American. But the road to confirmations may be more difficult this year. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. So, first of all, tell us what... Joe Biden accomplished with his judicial confirmations in 2021? Well, he tied Ronald Reagan's record for the first year of her presidency because Biden confirmed 40 appellate and district judges, 11 for the appeals courts, uh, 29 for the district courts. Uh, and we, you have to go back to the time of Reagan to see anyone who came close to that. And Biden easily surpassed the number whom Trump uh, nominated and confirmed in 2017. So it was very successful. And the nominees who were confirmed and the nominees themselves were very diverse in terms of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, experience, and ideology. And all of that is critically important for the federal judiciary. So some groups are complaining that there should be more Hispanics on the bench and nominees who are disabled or who have a background in disability law. Are you getting the best candidate possible when you're looking to change the diversity on the bench? Well, it depends on which kind of diversity you're talking about, but the types of diversity which Biden has promoted I think are important to have a judiciary that reflects the country, uh, gives more confidence to citizens in the federal courts when it reflects America, uh, limits prejudice against people who might experience discrimination in the federal courts. And so all of that is valuable and also means you'll have uh, better decisions. And so uh, everyone has a different definition of what a uh, qualified person is for the federal bench. But certainly all of Biden's nominees and confirmees have been highly qualified. And I think something like 8-90% have the highest American Bar Association rating. There's a vacancy on the Philadelphia Circuit Court. That'll give Biden a chance to flip that circuit? Yes. Brooke Smith, who was uh, the chief judge of the court, uh, recently assumed senior status. And uh, he was appointed by a Republican president. And so that means when his seat is filled, that that court will flip back, if you will, to a majority appointed by Democratic presidents. How many other circuits has Biden managed to flip back in a year? The other, I think, was the second because a Vermont judge, Peter Hall, resigned 
and then died a week later. But he had been appointed by a Republican president. And so that meant filling his seat with Judge Robinson meant that that court flipped back. Uh, Trump had managed to appoint enough people that there was a majority appointed by Republican president, but it flipped back to Democrats with replacement of Hall. So how important is that, you know, flipping of the circuits when the panels are composed of three judges, and so it depends on the luck of the draw for that? It does, and you also have to remember en banc review uh, by majority of judges in active service, and so the Second Circuit rarely takes up en banc, but other courts are quite active on that front. But you're correct. I mean, there's supposed to be random draws to three judge panels, and it's somewhat of a crude measure to talk about who the appointing president was. But generally, I think, when it's a Republican, the nominees and appointees are more conservative. And when it's a Democrat, the appointees and nominees are more moderate and sometimes liberal. Coming up next, will the confirmation process be more uphill in year two? This is Bloomberg Nominations. So tell us a little about the Sixth Circuit nominee who's facing opposition from the Republican senators. Andre Mathis is a nominee for the Sixth Circuit. He's highly qualified. He's a longtime commercial litigator, but has done a fair amount of criminal litigation as well, Um, and was nominated recently by the president. The home state senators from Tennessee, Senator Blackburn, who sits on Judiciary Committee, and Senator Haggerty said they weren't consulted enough by the White House in terms of whether they agreed to that nomination. And the president did go forward and nominate Mathis, but the White House and the counsel's office, who have responsibility for that, said that there was considerable consultation with the home state senators. So it may be that Senator Blackburn will bring that up in the hearing. If Mathis, as most people think, is scheduled. It isn't official yet, but it's likely to be confirmed that he uh, would be on that panel tomorrow. Uh, So we'll see how that uh, plays out. But remember that Senator Grassley, as chair of judiciary in 2017, carved out an exception from blue slips called a circuit exception. And with that change, 54 extremely conservative Republican appointees of Trump were able to uh, move through the judiciary. And Senator Blackburn voted for every one of Trump's nominees from a blue state who did not have two blue slips. And so it doesn't seem like she has much grounds to complain in this situation, given her voting record. And I think the White House is certainly going to honor the circuit exception that was created by Republicans and used to basically appoint all of the uh, Trump appointees in blue states over objections of home state senators from the Democratic Party. And so that's where we are. And I think Chair Durbin is committed to that position. 
So we'll see how that plays out in the hearing if he's on. Is he considered sort of liberal? It's not clear. He's been in private practice, I believe, his whole career with a smaller firm in Memphis. And then now with Butler and Snow, which is a fairly substantial firm in that part of the country. And he's litigated many cases, mostly commercial, but a number of criminal cases that he took on, I think, pro bono and some quite substantial and difficult cases in the criminal justice system. And so I don't know whether they think he is liberal or not. He's a partner in that major firm, has a record as a highly qualified litigator, and so knows his way around federal courts. What other nominations are ahead? Well, there were a number uh, of nominations, 75, which is a very substantial number in 2021. And what's most striking is how the Biden administration is prioritizing its nominations by first being sure that as many appellate nominees are there to fill all of those vacancies, as well as targeting states that have high numbers or percentages of vacancies, for example, New York and especially California, and emergency, which both of those states have substantial numbers of. So they're setting priorities about which are most critical and then moving people. For example, uh, on December 15, there was a package of 10 nominees, the most recent, or some of the most recent nominees, and a number of them were from California and New York. And so they, that is the way in which they're, they're proceeding, and I think that makes sense for the needs of the judiciary. Biden has been concentrating. The overwhelming number of nominations were in states represented by two Democrats. Do you see things getting tougher in the second year? And certainly it's a year when they have to move fast due to the upcoming possible change in the Senate. Yes, I I think they're very aware of that. And they are acting uh, as if they might lose the Senate majority. And I think that's pragmatic and realistic on the part of the administration. And so they're doing everything possible to expedite nominations and confirmations. For example, tomorrow, I think, they're likely to be five district nominees as well as Mathis. And I think we'll see every two weeks that Senator Durbin, as chair of judiciary, will schedule hearings and move them forward to committee votes and then on to the floor um, as quickly as possible. There'll be more nominee slates, I think, this month and every month and probably two or three uh, a month uh, as we move forward um, during 2022. So I think that's the plan. As to your point, I think that there are enough uh, appointees who Democratic presidents confirm to take up much of the time of the Senate this year. Though I think there's been outreach, and we'll see for certain that the three nominees from the Northern District of Ohio who have come forward and need a committee vote tomorrow, all supported by uh, Portman, who's a Republican, and Brown, who's a Democrat, and worked through their excellent bipartisan selection commission, we'll see them confirmed. So it shows that at least in swing states or purple states that 
you can work together and move forward. Thanks, Carl. That's Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.